Hi, y'all, and welcome to the All Swell podcast. We are a student-led podcast in association with Coastal News Today and the Coastal Society. My name is Genevieve, or as many of my friends call me Gigi, and I'm here today with my co-host Kira and a special guest. Today, we are joined by Dr. Ger Arthur, who is the research director at the North Carolina Policy Collaboratory. Before we get started, I'd really like to thank Steve Wall, who is the outreach director, for introducing us at the National PFAS conference back in June. Welcome to the podcast, and I'll let Kira start us off. To break the ice, uh, what is your favorite coastal area? Um, it can be anywhere. Oh, my goodness. Um, it's not going to be anywhere in the UK. I love the UK. I miss it. <laughs> but it's pretty cold on those coastal areas. Um I mean, the coast in North Carolina is absolutely beautiful. I've been out to Emerald Isle. I've been all over the coast here, but uh, also pretty big fan of out in some of the Arabic countries uh, that I've been to. So, yeah, I've traveled quite a bit. That sounds awesome. Oh, that's awesome. For our non-North Carolina listeners, can you please explain what the North Carolina Policy Collaboratory is and what your role is? Uh, Sure. So... The collaboratory, we're headquartered at the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill. We were created by the legislature in 2016. And I think as far as I'm aware, we're pretty unique. Um, So we receive appropriations directly from the legislature and we work to, they also provide us with mandates for research and areas they want us to look into. And so our mission is effectively to transform academic research into practical information for use by state and local governments and the communities they serve. And that that implies a one-way direction uh, that we just deliver information to governments. But I think our strength and success actually comes from the partnerships we build. So we partner with other groups from the start. We don't just deliver information to them. So it's very much a partnership-based efforts. Yeah, thank you. Um, that sounds super interesting, especially the collaboration between um, kind of non-governmental agencies or organizations and then and, and people and kind of that um, link to, to the government and where the money is like kind of coming from and all that. Um, maybe go back a little bit in your um, career in your life like how did you get this position and was it something that you were looking to get into after finishing up your doctorate in immunology oh that's a great question so let me see where do I start um so yeah I I have a background in immunology like you say molecular biology specifically so I was working many, many hours during my PhD in a lab, very far away from the people who were affected by the research and also from the who were experiencing the issues I was studying. And my PhD advisor was a physician and he never let me forget that even though I was working in a lab focused on cells, so cells and proteins and DNA, Uh, He never let me forget the fact that there were patients on the other end. Um, So he took me into the clinic with him. Um, I met 
met patients. I had absolutely no medical training, but he really drilled in, drilled that into me. And so I think after I graduated for, with my PhD, I, I went into a couple of postdoc positions. I carried on with my molecular focus, but I think I knew I was missing something. It's not that I didn't enjoy the research, but I was really looking for a bridge to actually see when the research would be applied. And I was searching everywhere for that. I went into, whilst I was doing my postdoc and even my PhD, I was working as a writer, as a communicator. So I thought maybe communication was what I was looking for, but there was still that engagement piece that I was missing. Um, I really wanted to find a way to actually see how research was applied and actually be part of that. So I eventually moved into the administrative side of research. And I think the reason I liked that so much was because I was able to work with so many different researchers. And I was also taking part in different aspects of research itself. So moving beyond asking the questions and actually getting into this whole world of administration. I mean, it's just enormous, all the things that have to go on around the research to make it possible. But um, there was still this piece, I've, I love working in universities, I really believe in academia, but I was still not getting that engagement piece. And then I started digging into policy. I don't know if that's normal, but um, I, I've wondered how many people who get who are looking for that end up eventually landing on policy. And I was attending a, I think there was a webinar. Um, I think it was hosted by Sigma Psi. And they had a speaker on there and it was Jeff Warren, who is the executive director of the collaboratory. And he was talking about the collaboratory and I couldn't quite believe what he was talking about because I thought, well, that, that, is, that is everything that I have ever been looking for. I didn't realize anything like that existed. And I had been looking for a long time at fellowship positions in science policy, but there was something about that that wasn't, there's something about that, like it was almost, the problem with the fellowship is that there was the concept that I would have to leave academia. That might not be correct. Um, I never tried one, but I, I really wanted to stay within academia. Um, so I actually reached out, I just emailed Jeff straight after the webinar and said, this is so fascinating, I have to learn more. And it's a little bit complicated, but I was going through a lot of immigration at the time. I couldn't actually apply for any fellowships because certainly not at the federal level because I was on a visa, so I wasn't eligible for that. Um, but anyway, I basically spoke to Jeff for about two years and we covered an enormous number of topics and he was extremely patient and forthcoming with just teaching me about science policy in general. I basically had a two year study of science policy with him. And then eventually he said, we have an opening for the research director position. And um, I think you'd be a great candidate. And I applied and got the job. And I think there's a lot of, I'm sure there's a lot of great jobs out there in the world, but I'm pretty sure I might have the best one. No, that's awesome. I, I loved how, I don't think you're wrong in, in the sense of like, I think everybody who does work in a lab kind of like thinks like, oh my gosh, how is this going to get applied outside of this lab? 
And I think that's a very natural direction for anyone that comes from like the more like biological side of things and seeing what's going on, you know, in the world around us and just moving over towards policy. I kind of had the the very same direction and always was like, well, how how do we communicate these things? And now that social media is so big and everyone, a lot of people have access to the internet and how you can share these things. And I really liked how you talked about how, you know, the difference between, you know, writing and getting the information out, but really having that engagement piece with the communities. And so um, what are some tools or methods um, that you've kind of picked up on that can help uh, researchers to communicate their findings more effectively? I think the first thing I would say is you want to think about why you want to communicate those findings. What is it that you're actually trying to achieve in communicating those findings? Um, is it just general awareness of the issue? Are you offering a solution? That's pretty tricky. And you have to think very carefully about that. And then I think related to that, you would want to think about maybe communication. Do you want that to be a one-way delivery of information at the end of your project? So I think the basically the main thing I would say is you want to think about what you want to achieve. Depending on what you want to achieve, I would also think about just the concept of communication and like comparing that with engagement. So one of the things I've learned since being at the collaboratory and working, I have the chance to interact with legislators, a lot of state, state agencies, and I've learned that there's often a big difference between the academic research question and the question that practitioners and policymakers and decision makers are trying to ask, like, ask and answer. So when you want to communicate your findings, I would actually be thinking about engaging before you even have any findings. So you can think about and hear from the people who could be affected by that research before you even start asking questions. Like the state governments, state agencies do an absolutely enormous amount of work. They are they are so busy and they are working, they, they, they move through issues so fast. I think taking time to understand what they already know is really critical before you start communicating um, because you actually need to figure out where the gaps are and what people are maybe looking for and what, in what way you can support them. Um, and I think another thing here is I don't have any experience in this, but I work with a lot of researchers who do have experience in this. And it's, there's a partnership aspect to the research that's very important from the start to finish. So when you have findings, maybe considering the fact that you need to be working with other people who are working with the problem or experiencing the problem to actually interpret those findings before you communicate them. So, yeah, I think there's, <laughs> I don't know if any of those are resources per se, but that's how I would think. I think there's also maybe the communication, thinking about timing is very important as well. Policy moves super fast. 
issues move super fast, people's attention moves very, very quickly. And there are only very short windows of opportunities to provide information. Uh, like, for instance, the legislature in North Carolina is part time. They have very limited bandwidth and there is a budget cycle to think about when these policies are being made, when budgets are being decided on. So the timing of that is critical as well. But it also depends on all the other issues that are competing on that agenda. So, yeah, I, again, I don't know if those are any resources, but those are the things I would think about. No, I, I think that's great. I think that's sometimes something we don't think about um, as academics is actually think about what's going on at the government level, not only at state, but also at the local level um, as well. Uh, I had the like I was very lucky during my master's to also be with a lot of the public administration um, people as well. And that's something I learned a lot being like, oh, this is how local government operates and and people really need to get involved and let the let them, you know, even at the, your city level of saying, hey, like these are the issues that are important to us. These are the changes that we want to see. Um, but I think that that was uh, a great, um, great feedback of of researchers thinking about, you know, the who and the and the what and the why and the when um, as well. Yeah, I think so, too. And especially also what stood out to me, I guess, was like that you said um, to engage people before you even have the findings. So that's um, something that I guess a lot of us are just about to kind of learn and and get experience with that um, we don't go into like issues that are, um, yeah, already that we already think we know what needs to be done, but like actually kind of like starting from more the bottom up and yeah, trying to engage as many um, people that are involved and whether that's on the professional or like kind of the community side. Um, so that, yeah, really also um, stood out to me and I guess related to that and maybe to give a little bit of a an example, what are some of the coastal or coastal related issues that you have had the chance to work on in your um, time ever since you got into this position? So I'll say that anything that I work on, I'm very much an administrator. So I am not ever taking part in the research I am supporting the researchers who are doing the work. Um, the most immediate things that come to mind are things like the PFAS testing network. This was created by the General Assembly in 2018, and it involves researchers across eight universities. That's, that's addressing that large group of chemicals known as PFAS. That is by no means limited to coastal areas, but we do have teams at, in Wilmington. Um, because of it, this, it's just such a widespread issue. Um, and I know that I've attended a lot of events at the coast there. But um, with that topic, they're focusing on things like the health effects, the exposure routes, and developing new drinking water filtration technology. But then outside of PFAS, uh, the collaboratory has funded groups like the Audubon Society, who are collaborating with researchers at Elizabeth City. Um, and then UNC Chapel Hill, that's mainly focused on conservation research, 
monitoring changes in coastal habitats using drones and looking at changes in marsh vegetation. That's a really nice example of a cross-sector partnership. Um, and people at the Audubon Society are absolutely wonderful. Uh, they have a lot of experience. They bring a lot of important community-based expertise into that partnership. And then a little bit before my time, but the collaboratory was already, it's already been directed by the legislature to identify agriculture programs and funding needs to help grow the industry. And there were researchers at the UNC Institute of Marine Sciences that have already led projects that have actually led to the legislature passing new sets of initiatives focused on industry growth and habitat improvement. But again, that one's, that one's definitely before my time. A more recent example that I've been involved in Again, as an administrator, it's for the fisheries and coastal habitat study. So this was, again, this was a, um, a mandated research priority from the legislature. And we funded nine researchers who are, they've basically been tasked with working to, to, together to deliver a report to the Environmental Review Commission. And their goal of this report is to inform future policy decisions related to managing marine fisheries and coastal habitats across the state. So the legislature set out the task of focusing on 13 species that are managed by North Carolina, but the researchers also have the flexibility to go beyond that to make sure that there's a very comprehensive picture. So they're also looking at other species that are harvested in North Carolina, but also jointly managed by multiple states or at the federal level. And... I think one of the important things to point out with this initiative is that the appropriation actually marks some two important milestones for the state's marine fisheries industry. So there's the 25th anniversary of the North Carolina Fisheries Reform Act of 1997, and there's the 50th anniversary of North Carolina's Coastal Area Management Act. So we've got researchers from multiple universities, including East Carolina, NC State, Wilmington, they are looking back across the timeframes to assess the effectiveness of existing management policies and as a result where the state's fisheries stand in comparison to those of other states. There's like a, a really, this is a really broad effort. So they are, they're actually looking all the way from how you define a nursery to the governance structures and then also the how the fish stocks fluctuate, how water quality changes over time. Um, again, one of the things that I think the collaboratory does really well in terms of the research it supports, um, these researchers are all taking the time to making sure they incorporate feedback from policymakers, commercial and recreational fishers and other industry stakeholders. So they're really taking a very broad approach to this. There's so many different areas of expertise involved and they want to compile this into a single final report um, that can be delivered to policymakers. And it's just a it's really great example of how the state prioritizes evaluating what's already been done. But I think I think that might be that's as much as I can recall right now <laughs> of the coastal issues that we've worked on. Thanks, Greer. That um, was a really awesome answer. And thank you also for talking about how PFAS are a coastal uh, issue. That is my background and, and what my dissertation will be on, uh, on the knowledge and perceptions of the exposure of that in Wilmington. And I really enjoyed that you talked about 
all the different things going on at these universities, how they're all tackling different coastal issues and even, you know, going back and just defining things such as a nursery and that there's collaborations between the states um, as well. And you really have talked about some of the triumphs, but I'd really like to hear from you about uh, some of the challenges that you have uh, with your position and some of the challenges at the collaboratory right now. It's a very exciting position, but the volume of work is staggering. Um, we so last year alone, I think last fiscal year, we handled $86 million and we have a very small team. So let me think how many, I think we have six full-time employees. Um, we, the collaboratory, so one of the really important things about the collaboratory is we don't take any funding from the legislature for that's, appro that's appropriated for research. So there's UNC Chapel Hill actually covers all of our overhead costs. So every single dollar that comes through the collaboratory for research goes straight out for research as well. And so we run very, very lean. Um, I think, yeah, so on top of the volume of work that we deal with, um, I can't think how many active projects we, we have right now, but it's, it's far over 200 active projects. So that's a lot of reporting that's a lot of financial oversight for a small team. We do have some absolutely wonderful colleagues at the university. Our position at the university is extremely important because of their ability to provide administrative support and expertise. So actually related to that, I guess, one of the other really big challenges, this is something I didn't anticipate and um, I kind of, gleaned the skills and experience that I needed by accident because during COVID I was working for a, well, before COVID I was part of a global health program at NC State, but then COVID happened and obviously everything shut down. And I actually then started working with one of the college's grants offices. And that taught me a ton of administration that I hadn't ever been exposed to before. And when I've come into this position, I've realized that a substantial amount of science policy related work actually involves understanding the financial and legal aspects of funding. So one of the challenging aspects of my job is spending an, a ton of time navigating state and federal requirements for all the different types of funding that we get because they are state appropriations, but they it's like some like $50 million of our portfolio comes from, it originates from the treasury. So there's federal requirements attached to that, but then there are different types of state dollars. And then we also sometimes have, so we've got a new opioid abatement and recovery research program that we were tasked by the legislature to create. And the funding came from a different funding source again. So that takes a lot of time. And it's a, it's a steep learning curve and the policies and requirements don't stop changing. So you're constantly trying to keep up. Um, I think another interesting challenge that I face personally is that I've always wanted to be in the applied engaged research space, but there is an enormous culture difference between me and many of the people I interact with. So I have to be, I'm always extremely sensitive to the fact that I'm walking into a room 
with people who have very different perspectives, very different experiences, very different challenges they're facing that I might not ever be able to understand. So I think I lean very heavily on my colleagues to, and they're extremely patient with me. And sometimes after a meeting, I'll need a debrief and say, can we just dig into this issue that someone was talking about? Because I don't understand it and I've had no experience in it. Um, this is particularly important when, for instance, with the opioid abatement and recovery program, we are working with NC Central University and a group at UNC Chapel Hill, but they also make sure that groups like the Attorney General's office are on the call and also other entities like the North Carolina Association of County Commissioners. And I think one of the things I express very quickly and very clearly is that I'm here to learn. I need the guidance of people who have been working and experiencing these issues um, to educate me. So that's something I find challenging, but also extremely necessary. So yeah, that's a, <laughs> that's a good summary of everything I'm, I'm uh, tackling. Yeah, I loved your answer. Thank you so much. Um, I mean, everything from like saying, okay, like you're kind of humble enough to like be like, okay, I don't have, I don't know what's going on and please like um, help me understand what is, what is the, yeah, what are the challenges of people here, especially, and I can super relate um, <laughs> with that as being from a different country, right? From a different culture, having grown up um, in Europe and um, coming over here. And I think that's, super commendable that you have been able to get into this position because like everything here is different from how it's kind of organized over in the UK I'm pretty sure so like you don't have any background which is like wow um and then but then yeah um I guess when you're open and kind of have this curiosity and say okay I'm here to learn from you um people are actually quite or at least that's my that's been my experience people people are eager to help you um even though it might sometimes seem like oh my god I have this position and I'm supposed to be you know like um this person that has the understanding and I don't um but yeah I guess um kind of going a little bit um, down from that, um, what was your transition? And you talked a little bit about like having a visa and then not being able to apply for certain jobs. Um, how was your transition like from Europe to the US? And um, also, do you have like any advice for people uh, that would want to like international um, researchers or, or um, academics that are thinking about coming over to the U.S. Um, is there anything that you like stands out to you that helped you or um, yeah like a decision that you were like oh my god this is maybe not intentional but has helped me so much um, kind of coming here and integrating into this um, culture? That's a really good question so I think um The best advice came from my dad, who is, um, so I've got an interesting family history because my, um, let me think. So my mum, although I'm from the UK, 
my mum was, she moved over from another country as well. So there is, she had gone through her own immigration experience when she was younger. So I was able to kind of learn from that anyway. And then my dad has lived in another country as well for more than 20 years. So I feel like I had good preparation um, with guidance from my family. They are used to living in other cultures. Um, so the best advice came from my dad when he said, when you move to another country, you're going to have to be prepared for things to hit you sideways. For at least six months, you're going to feel like you can't find the ground beneath your feet. And that was incredibly important. I was shocked by how different the American culture was from British culture, because I have the enormous advantage of being like English is my first and only language. So I wasn't expecting the culture change to be as different, but it is enormous. And I think it's like there, it, it's, it's not uncommon for me to leave a meeting and think, oh my goodness, I don't know if I understood what was truly being said in the room because there's so many underlying like phrases or body language or how people's voice changes and fluctuates in a conversation. So sometimes I think that meeting went really well and other people go, that was terrible. Couldn't you pick up on that? And I, and so I have to, I think, constantly be looking for that, always making sure that I check in with people who have that background, who have that expertise and who are, who ha who share those different beliefs and perspectives to make sure that I become open-minded and sympathetic to those things, even though I might not fully understand them. So I think it's being aware that you're from a different culture, but be completely open to listening and ask people, can you talk to me a little bit about this and explain why this is important or explain why this was upsetting? Um, that has been really critical. But yeah, again, it's normal for the first six months for you to feel completely out of your depth and it's okay. And also um, one of the things that really surprised me, um, I don't know, I've never lived in any other state, but North Carolina is astonishingly friendly. People are so welcoming and polite and just generally lovely. Um, I'm not saying that British people aren't, but um, I think there is just an openness here People are just so ready to talk to you and be helpful. And I think learning to relax and enjoy that is important. Um, yeah, but it's quite a transition. So <laughs> um, yeah, no, I think every experience is gonna be completely different, but that's, yeah, that's probably all the advice I have. <laughs> I think that I think that's great advice. Uh, I love that. I um, when I was a child, I lived in England for three years, and it's it's different from a child's perspective than living like as an adult. But I agree. Sometimes in the U.S., like we forget that there, you know, with other English speaking countries, there are a lot of different nuances and culture differences. And so I can definitely see how, like, I, I talk to my friends because I watch, like, Love Island UK all the time. And, you know, the, just the, the way people, the way people chat and just some of the sayings and kind of like British humor can be very different than, you know, US or, or American humor. And then even, too, um, like you said about, you know, living in North Carolina, the South in the US can be very different from other parts of the country. 
uh, as well. And I think that's amazing that you've kind of just talked about being open and, and learning people's perspectives and just staying, like I just said, just staying very open to understanding. I think that's just such a great trait that helps with the in-between between academia and NGOs and, and governmental organizations um, as well. And so can, can we go back a little bit and talk about um, when you were in academia, um, where you went uh, for your undergrad, and kind of some of the biggest challenges that you had during your academic time? Sure. So my undergrad, I did a biomedical science degree back in the UK at Sheffield Hallam University. Uh, and then during that time, I did um, I took a year out to do a placement in a hospital. And that's actually where I met my PhD advisor, although I didn't know it yet. And I was just getting stuck into just lab work, basically trying to get in, get to grips with what research was. And then I went back, finished my undergraduate degree. And then I was looking around, trying to figure out what on earth I was trying to do. So biomedical science it was, it's a very, very broad degree. It covers everything from pathology to biochemistry. And I think I had considered a lot of different possible careers. I maybe toyed with medicine, but I really struggled with the response, with, with the responsibility that comes with that. I, I have an enormous amount of respect for anyone who can move into that line of work. The I think the thing that really cemented the direction that I eventually pursued was the fact that I knew I wanted to work in science, but I didn't really know what area of science. I, I actually didn't have any particular favorite area of science to work in, but anytime I looked at a job in science, I needed, I could see that basically a PhD seemed to be a basic entry level qualification. So I just thought, well, I guess next step is to pursue a PhD. And so I think one of the challenging things, though, that was that I realized probably on day two <laughs> of my PhD that this really wasn't for me. Um, and I, I think I'm still unpacking why that is. But I don't think I have ever been a good fit for being an academic researcher. There's just something there's just something about me, and I think I've felt that since, like I say, day two of my PhD, but I persevered through two postdocs. Um, and it was really when I started exploring administration and staff roles within university that I thought, oh, I think I, I think I might be finding my place. There's a lot of, when you work through academia, I think when you're trained in a PhD, and I'm talking from my perspective in my education, I think there are a lot of different programs that do this very differently. But from what I went through, there's a very clear focus on the fact that you're supposed to be aiming for a faculty position. And that means building in a, like a specialty, an area of expertise, you're carving out your, your niche. And that for me was very hard. I just don't think I could squeeze myself into one particular place. So... I felt like all the way through my PhD and postdoc, I was trying to make, find myself, make my position into something that wasn't generally what other people were pursuing. So I didn't want to carve out a narrow niche. I wanted 
to explore so many different things. I wanted to see, I wanted to be part of so many different aspects of research. Um, and it was only when I stepped into the administrative side that I realized, oh, it is possible to do that. And maybe just, I'm not supposed to be a researcher. I'm not supposed to be the expert in the room. I, I don't think I want to be the expert in the room. I love organizing. I love supporting people. I like, I really enjoy asking people questions because I don't understand enough and then being able to think of new things that other people didn't think of because I've been able to have all these different conversations with all these different people that I would never have been able to be in the room at the same time as if I'd stayed in one area. And I think it's that's just the way my brain works. Um, so it was just not fitting the not fitting what I thought was the academic mold was the biggest challenge. And then I realized I was just I was just maybe looking for the wrong job. And now I found it and I feel great. <laughs> yeah, that's uh, amazing. I, I loved how you like go went from like kind of yeah, like I don't I don't really um feel like that this is a good fit, but then it's really it's amazing that you were able to persevere. And um I guess just by listening to you, um Would you have been able to do the job that you're doing right now without your PhD? That's just a small side question. What did my PhD teach me? So I did a PhD in, I basically looked at mucus for, for three and a half years. I was looking at the electrophysiology of airway cells. So I was looking at the molecular currents of electricity and how that influences mucus. Now that specific topic area I never utilize that in my job right now. I think it took me a long time to realize what a PhD taught me, and it actually goes quite far beyond the subject matter itself. But it taught me to think for myself. It taught me to think critically. It taught me to constantly challenge what I think I know and also to rigorously collect data before I I claim to know anything. So... I do think I could do this job without this PhD, but I really also think that PhDs provide really important training that can be applied so far beyond the subjects that you train in. And I have definitely met quite a few students. It's quite nice, actually. It's not uncommon for me to get an email from someone I know and say, hey, could you just talk to this PhD student because they're having a bit of a crisis. They don't really feel like they are enjoying their PhD program. They're questioning why they did their program. And they just needed to talk to somebody who had had a PhD but hadn't pursued a like tenure track position. And so, yeah, I think um, it's maybe it's just important to to kind of just push through it and think you are building an enormous amount of other skills that can be applied in many different ways beyond those that are immediately obvious but you kind of have to go through it and get some work experience under your belt and then have like reflect back on what you've achieved and then go oh okay yeah it all fits I, i i totally see how and why i'm applying that training in that way but everyone is going to do that completely different differently like training like a PhD is only one very small part of your character who you are your experience um, I'm also an artist I I do a lot of creative writing 
in my spare time, all of those things kind of like my PhD training collides with my art to create something completely different that I apply in my job. So yeah, you can definitely do this job without a PhD, but I fully respect what a PhD has taught me. Oh, thank you so much for talking about that. I think um, that's something that uh, both myself and Kira have struggled with of just, you know, do I really want to finish this degree? And, you know, we're in the interdisciplinary space, so it seems so daunting when the traditional, like you said, the traditional way is kind of like you're going to become an expert on this. And um, we here are very much like, no, we really want to get to learn everything so that we can ask the right questions, maybe provide the right answers to different groups. And, you know, like we started at the beginning of the podcast with that, you know, community and engagement piece. And I think that's great that, you know, PhD, like you just said about just making sure you're getting skills during the time and that it's also not just the only thing about you, that you can go out and do these other things. And those are just as big of a piece um, as yourself as just doing the PhD. I think that sometimes Sometimes I would get lost in the identity of just being a PhD student and not in the identity of, you know, being a runner or a surfer or, or these other things that we like to do. Um, they, thank you so much for just talking about that and, and just being really honest and Rob, you know, about the, the academic experience and maybe not pursuing, you know, the, the traditional tenured faculty track uh, position. And so we have a motto um, here uh, with our podcast, and it's where there's a will, there's a wave. And I was just to kind of wrap up the podcast, what um, what keeps you motivated? What gets you out of bed um, in the morning and working um, with dealing with all of these different research questions and, and working with the state? I don't know if it motivates me, but I definitely think it guides how I tackle every single day. Um, Generally, I always want to solve problems, but okay, let me try and make this, let me try and make this short. I won't ramble on too long. So there's a play by Oscar Wilde called The Importance of Being Earnest. And one of the characters in that is a woman called Lady Bracknell, who she's, she's terrifying, terrifying character. And she asks one of the other characters, most people, they know either everything or they know nothing, which are you. And one of the characters says, I know nothing. It's really funny when it happens in the play, but I, I watched that when I was very, very young and I always found that answer very bizarre, but every single, it's become extremely relevant when I've worked as a researcher, but also in this job right now, I am extremely aware of my own bias. And so whenever I, and I think maybe there's, an advantage to having moved to another country and feeling like you know nothing. <laughs> but whenever I walk into a room, I always make sure that the, I have the assumption that there's something for me to learn, that I need to be open-minded. I need to really challenge my own opinions if I disagree with somebody who says something different. And I need to be open to changing my perception about that. So I am always going to meet people who disagree with me, but that, like, I know nothing is probably the thing that I carry with me every single day. And I think it, I think it works. <laughs> uh, so it sounds like it's working. Um, thank you so much. And where is the best place for people to reach out to you um, to, to make, if they have more questions or they want to follow what you're, you're doing for work? 
Oh, so people can find me on LinkedIn. That's a pretty good, you can always ping me a message on there. But then also I would just check out the, I think my my main website is still on LinkedIn, but then there's also the collaboratory website. If you just go to the about page, you'll find me under there. Um, and you can always email the general collaboratory email inbox as well. But I'm, I'd be very, very happy to talk to people. Um, and I'm very grateful to you for letting me come on this podcast because this has been really fun. Oh, thank you. I, it's It's been great. And I, it's just been lovely to talk to you. Um, and so we finish kind of every podcast with, with our motto. So on the count of three, we will all finish where, where there's, there's a will, will there's, there's a wave. A wave.